I also would like to um, promote a little bit an event that we're having at the end of this month. And that is a, uh, we've got a group coming down from a church, a vineyard church in the Long Island area. A uh, pastor's name is Phil Urena, and uh, he's bringing a ministry team with him. And he's going to do kind of a mini conference here. Uh, we're going to do like a Friday night, a couple of times on Saturday. And he's going to be talking about um, the Holy Spirit, ministering in power, identity uh, is going to be one of the things he's really going to touch on. Uh, a lot of ministry time, some worship. It should be a fantastic uh, event. And then he will as well preach on Sunday. So more details will be forthcoming, but just wanted to make sure that everyone was sort of thinking about that. Put that on your calendar. Um, should be a, a wonderful time of refreshing for all of us. Uh, it's the 26th, 7th, I think. August. That later this month. Yes. I'm sorry? When I know they're going to stay in homes, yeah, as soon as I know uh, how many he's bringing, we'll start to look for places to house them. It's not going to be a huge number, but um, he should be getting that to me this week. All right. Moving on. Well, as we said, we finished up the, uh, the chapter 3, which was the last of the seven letters uh, last week. And just to kind of re, uh, recap, this was the letter to Laodicea. And uh, sort of the big idea there was that uh, this was a church that was very self-sufficient. And so Jesus really rebukes them. Uh, they, he refers to them as being lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. That you know, if they were just one or the other, that would be great, but they're neither. And so that was a, a huge problem. And then some of the insights that we drew from that is that, uh, first of all, that Jesus is the only reliable source of life, right? That, you know, you can have all the physical wealth, all the comfort, all the good things that this life has to offer, and there's nothing wrong with having those. But if you do have those, it has a tendency to foster this sense of spiritual complacency. Right? Well, we think we've got it all. We don't really need anything else. And that's just not true. Uh, the other, another point was that Jesus will occasionally rebuke us in order to get us back on track, to heal us. Uh, and that's never fun, but it is sometimes necessary. And then uh, the last point was that Jesus waits patiently to renew fellowship with us. Uh, if we will finally sort of come to the end of ourselves. And I think I even mentioned that's sort of the phrasing that's used in the, uh, the prodigal son scripture. It says when, referring to the prodigal son, that when he came to the end of himself, right? When he finally decided that he couldn't do it on his own anymore, then he turned him, then he basically turned and started back towards his father. Um, and so that's the same thing with us. Jesus is just waiting. And we talked about that picture uh, of, uh, of Jesus knocking on the door that relates directly to Revelation 3.20 and uh, the fact that there's no handle on Jesus' side of the door, right? It's, 
he's waiting for us to open it. All right, so that was, that was the letter to Laodicea. <clears throat> and so now we're, we move into uh, chapter 4, and we're going to do all of chapter 4 today. It's only 11 verses. Um, and so we have, you know, initially John's sort of introductory vision of the risen and glorified Christ. Remember all that? And then, you know, as he, he, Jesus uses aspects of that introduction in each of the letters to the seven churches. Uh, and so we have that. Well, now the scene basically shifts from this, from this earthly perspective, which is what the letters were, to now much more of a heavenly perspective. Uh, and we're going to get into this throne room. Well, that, well, those were the big ideas. I guess I should have been doing this while I was talking about them. There we go. Now I'm caught up. So this is this idea, this throne room vision that is now described in chapter 4. And that this is really the anchor for the remainder of the book of Revelation. So kind of getting a hold of this, this is where the rest of the story takes place, more or less. Uh, <clears throat> and this particular vision really first presents God as the sovereign creator of all things, sitting on his throne, and then it turns to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, and who we learn is the only one who is worthy to open the seals of this document. And so this whole image of the throne and everything um, really sort of unites the ideas that will come forth in, in this chapter and in the next one uh, as really providing this grand assurance that God's going to accomplish everything that he set out to. Right? He had these plans for creation from the very beginning, and all of that will be achieved. And we're going to sort of see all that uh, as that lays out. And then it really talks about that the only proper response to that is what? Worship. This, if nothing else, is a chapter about worship. Uh, first by the four living creatures, then by the 24 elders, then by all of the angelic beings, and then finally by every creature. Every creature. All right, so let's go into this. This is Revelation chapter 4. As I said, it's verses 1 to 11. We'll look at the first part here. <clears throat> so Revelation 4.1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with something sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. 
The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this word. And Lord, I pray as we dive into this to uh, understand it, that you would bring that, uh, that wisdom, that discernment, that knowledge that can come only from you, and to help all of us get a clearer understanding of what this says and how this affects our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your wisdom and your guidance. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So let's start to, let's look at some of these verses and sort of see if we can get a better understanding of what this is really saying. So verse 4-1 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And then a little bit further it says, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And so after John has received this vision that started in verse 1-9 and went all the way through the end of chapter 3, John now sees this heavenly door that's been opened by God. And a heavenly voice sort of summons John to enter heaven so that he can receive another prophetic vision. Jesus is going to show John what must take place after this. And so what that means is that God's going to reveal, after this throne room vision of Revelation 4 and 5, um, although one thing to keep in mind is that this will not necessarily be in strict chronological order. Okay, We'll talk more about that as that occurs. Now, <clears throat> what is interesting about this particular verse is that this is a verse that is widely used by those who are proponents of the whole rapture theory of the church. So in other words, the idea that this, the church is raptured up to heaven before any of the tribulation occurs that is, is talked about in here. Um, and so they, they look at John's rapture as a sign that the whole church is going to disappear you know, before the plagues that are recorded in the following chapters are, are poured out. And part of the rationale that is used for this understanding is that the voice that John heard was like the sound of a trumpet. And Paul says that a trumpet will sound at the rapture. Now, the problem, though, is that there are advocates of this position who seem oblivious to the fact that God uses a trumpet on a whole lot of occasions throughout, you know, throughout Scripture. And in fact, 
you know, as we've seen in the very first chapter, the connection between God's voice and the sound of a trumpet occurs throughout the text. And so it's really not a valid thing to pin, you know, an entire theory of the Bible on this one event. Okay. So let's then go on to verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And so John goes up to heaven by means of this Spirit-inspired vision. And it's very similar to that, the experience that Ezekiel had. If you've read the book of Ezekiel, it's the same kind of thing. He's having this, this vision that is coming to him from God. And John, in, when he has this, he immediately lays his eyes on the center of all reality. And that's God seated on his throne. And so John is going to get to view what's going to happen from the absolute best vantage point possible. He gets to actually see all this happening from the throne of God in the glory cloud. And so rather than describing God by using his name or by using some kind of human characteristic, John just really tells us of you know, the amazing splendor and the beauty that he sees when he looks upon the throne of God. It's the central image of all of Revelation, this idea of God and his throne. And it symbolizes that he is absolutely sovereign and majestic in his being. And so, because God is the determiner of all things, then the only way that we can really understand what's going, our world and what's going on in it is if we have a right understanding of the centrality of the throne of God to everything else. If we don't have that, then the rest of it doesn't make a lot of sense. Verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. Well, there's been a lot of attempts to try to understand and determine who are these people, if they're people. Who are these beings? There's a better way to say it. Um, now, some believe they are some sort of an exalted order of angels that serves um, sort of as part of a heavenly council, you know, that sits around the Lord. Um, and that, you know, in some sense, they represent, these angelic beings represent the people of God because there's 12 tribes and 12 apostles. So that equals the 24. Now, if you are of this viewpoint, then you see them um, as being clearly distinct from God's people and that their primary role is related to worship since they, from what we read, they're primarily falling down a lot, right, as the angelic beings are worshiping, then they are falling down on their face and worshiping God. But there's another viewpoint that sees things much differently, and I'll explain why. First of all, the mere name elders would indicate that these beings represent the church, not some class of angels. Because nowhere else in the entirety of Scripture is the term elder given to anybody but men. Right? And from the very earliest of times, it has stood for those 
who have the rule and representation within the church. So that's number one. So thus, you know, the elders that are described here in this particular passage, if you take it at face value, would seem to be representative of God's people, kind of like the Senate sitting in council around their bishop. And so add to that this other consideration, which is sort of reinforcing it, because these elders are seen sitting on thrones. And we've been told elsewhere in this prophecy that Christians are reigning with Christ, that they wear crowns, that they have been granted kingly authority over other nations, that non-believers will be forced to bow down before them, and that they are seated with Christ on his throne. And now here in chapter 4, we see these elders seated on thrones. Is that not a continuation of the teaching that's already been presented so far? Third, we should consider the symbolism of the number 24. Now in general, since 24 is a multiple of 12, there's again reason to assume that this number has something to do with the church. Because 12 is a number that's biblically associated with the people of God. Okay? Israel was divided into 12 tribes. And even in the administration of the new covenant, the church is spoken of in terms of 12 tribes because the church is the new Israel. Right? But I think this picture of the 24 elders is based on something that's much more specific than this mere notion of multiplying, multiplying 12. Because if you look at worship in the Old Covenant, there were 24 divisions of priests and 24 divisions of singers in the temple. And so this picture of the 24 elders of worship is not a new idea to those who are first reading Revelation. It's been a feature of the worship of God's people for over a thousand years. And then we have this sort of series of phrases that occurs, from the throne, in front of the throne, also in front of the throne. And so we have this throne that's sending forth lightning and thunder, all symbolic of God's power and God's glory. And this phenomenon occurs at the conclusion of each series of judgments that we will learn about as we go forth in this. And then in front of the throne are seven lamps, which are the seven spirits of God, or the Holy Spirit manifested in his fullness. And then also before the throne is something like a sea of glass or a sea of crystal, clear as crystal. And that really symbolizes that you know, that God's holiness and his transcendent majesty that sort of, that separates him from his creation. And the image of the sea appears twice more in Revelation, as we'll see. In chapter 15, what looks like a sea of glass is relating to God's holiness and judgment. And then in chapter 21, the sea becomes a symbol of chaos and evil, uh, has completely disappeared. Um, because God has totally judged evil and now nothing separates him from his people. So the sea is gone. And it's sort of similarly symbolic to 
the curtain being torn, right? When Jesus was crucified. And that separation that existed between God and man was done away with. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. The four living creatures are exalted angelic beings who form an inner circle around the throne. And they resemble the cherubim of Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 and the seraphim of Isaiah 6, although there are some differences. And this exalted order of angels really represents God's creation. They stand closest to God's presence. They obviously play some role in executing judgment, and they lead the heavenly court in worship. I like uh, what theologian Michael Wilcox says. He says, The cherubs of the Bible are, far, are very far from being chubby infants with wings and dimples. If you've ever seen any painting from the, oh gosh, from the earliest of the Renaissance, you know, they, that's the way, look at the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, right? You have these really cute little chubby angels flying around. It's not what they look like. If you are true to what scripture says, they're pretty terrifying, actually. Um, they are awesome creatures, visible indications of the presence of God. So when scripture tells us that the Lord travels both on a cherub and on the wings of the wind, we may begin to see a link between the four living creatures of 4-6 and the four winds of chapter 7, verse 1. We might call these cherub creatures nature, so long as we remember what nature really is an immense construction throbbing with the ceaseless activity of God. Perhaps their faces represent his majesty, his strength, his wisdom and his loftiness, and their numberless eyes, his ceaseless watchfulness over every part of his creation. It is appropriate then that there should be four of them corresponding to the points of the compass and the corners of the earth and standing for God's world as the 24 elders stand for the church. And this is a theme that you'll see, and I'm not going to go into a lot of explanation of it today, but this idea of the four corners, all right? And it was sort of envisioned, the world in Jewish, in the Jewish mindset of that time, envisioned the world sort of as a tabletop or an altar top with four distinct corners. Okay, and that's just how they thought of things, right? It wasn't like a, a, geo, you know, a geographic reference of what they really thought the world looked like, but if they were looking at it from their theological mindset, that's what they would picture. And so this idea of four and the four corners was very significant to them. And so, you know, as we go through this, look for other examples of that where you see four, the number four, and this idea of the four corners or the four winds or things like that is kind of a representation of this Jewish mindset of how they viewed things. All right, night and day. Night and day, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And so these living creatures are worshiping God 
for attributes that are central to John's vision and really most applicable to the churches that are undergoing this severe testing that we've just talked about, right? These seven churches, all of them, I've told several people, I'm so thankful that for finally on one Sunday I don't have to preach on perseverance. <laughs> now I know there are people that like to hear a message of perseverance, and that's great, but you know, from my standpoint, it's like I thought, oh my gosh, another message on perseverance? How am I going to make this sound any different than the other ones? Well, I'm not so sure I'm supposed to, right? God didn't really make it sound any different, and obviously he wanted to make sure that we got that message from this that we're supposed to persevere, right? And then do it again, and then do it again, and then do it again, <laughs> over and over. But if you were these churches that were undergoing this kind of persecution, then holiness, power, and this idea of eternity would have been really important to you, right? There's something bigger than, than what I'm dealing with now. There's something greater. This is a temporary thing. But eternity is what I have to look forward to. And so, like the seraphim in Isaiah 6, they're praising God three times for his holiness. And so, <clears throat> in this holiness and power, you know, God is also eternal. And that, you know, this idea of who was and who is and who is to come is most likely just an expansion of the I am who I am that we read of in Exodus. Moving on to verse 10 and 11. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay down their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And so now the elders are joining in with the living creatures and praising God. And if you really dig into the word worship that's used here, it suggests the common Eastern custom of really prostrating oneself before God in order to show due honor and respect. And so just really, you know, getting down on your, 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 your stomach, really. They're submitting whatever authority they have to God in the act of laying down their crowns before him. And this really is going to contrast very sharply with uh, the worship of the emperor cult. Now, you remember we talked about the emperor cult in some of these other letters. The, this was this group of people that worshipped the Roman emperor. And so this greeting of you are worthy was often used to welcome the emperor to a city when he would show up. Well, now it's being directed to the only person that is really worthy of getting that kind of a title. The title, Our Lord and God, which was demanded by the Emperor Domitian. He actually demanded that people refer to him that way. Well, now it's given rightfully to God, who alone is the only one who is really deserving of it. And so he is 
worshipped as creator and as the one who created this world and it, in, in so doing is its only rightful ruler. And so, you know, in this divinely sanctioned worship, the elders have proclaimed the truth. The creation exists not because God needed to create or is dependent upon his creation in any way, but simply because it was his will to create. It pleased him to do so. God is sovereign and utterly independent from the creation. This distinction between the creator and the creature is absolute. And this heavenly worship service here shows us what God wants in earthly worship. Worship must be corporate. Biblical worship is not individualistic, quietistic, or solely internal. Now this is not to say that there's no place for private worship. But it does mean that the biblical emphasis on corporate worship is a far cry from the preferred worship of many evangelicals who see individual worship as having a priority over corporate worship and who really even think that what corporate worship refers to is an aggregation of individual worshipers. So if everybody gets together and all worships kind of does their own thing, that's corporate worship. Scripture says, nuh-uh. The pattern of biblical worship is the corporate worship service with full participation among the united members of the congregation demonstrating a harmony of unity and diversity. That's what corporate worship is supposed to look like. Second, worship must be responsorial. We'll see more of this as we kind of move through this book of Revelation. Uh, which, as I said, is about worship as much as it's about anything else. But it's already been the case with the passages that we've just looked at. See, the elders and the four living creatures are seen, or they're shown singing these musical responses back and forth, almost in a dialogue. And really, in the worship of the church, that's what we should do. We should respond to the reading of Scripture to the prayers, to the singing, to the teaching, and to the sacraments. And quite frankly, this is one place where I think the black church is a lot more biblical than in its white church counterpart. The call and response that you hear if you go to an African-American church where you know, the black preacher is preaching and the congregation is, is speaking back, is much more like what you see the elders and the four living creatures doing as opposed to the deafening silence that you typically hear in a white church during the message. So don't you ever apologize to me again. <laughs> it's kind of funny that the one day I preached this, she can't talk. <laughs> But I'm serious. <laughs> this is what it's supposed to sound like, right? There's supposed to be this connection with this, 
where you're hearing and you're responding, and this is going back and forth. So this is what we see in heavenly worship. And our worship should be structured as much as possible in imitation of a heavenly pattern. It's what Jesus taught us. He says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Third, worship must be orderly. You see, the elders and the living creatures don't interrupt each other or they don't attempt to upstage each other. And while worship should be corporate and it should involve the entire church, it shouldn't be chaotic. I mean, Paul gave us the standard for that in 1 Corinthians 14, 14, 40. Let everything be done decently and in order, right? In that, in that whole book, he kind of lays out what that's supposed to look like. And so charismatics tend to have good instincts that the worship should include everybody, but in actual practice it tends towards some confusion and disorder because everyone's worshiping individually. And see, one of the solutions, which I have to admit I'm not a fan of, is going back to a common liturgy where there is something spoken and a response given, right? And in that way, the church is able to worship together as a united whole. Now, you know, I'll be the first to tell you, I came from a Catholic background, and I ran from that as fast as I could. I'll, but I also didn't understand why it was that way. And I think this provides at least a lot more insight into why it is that way. Now, I'm not saying we are going to go to a liturgical service all of a sudden. I'm not saying that. I'm just kind of pointing out that what it's supposed to look like, that there's supposed to be a unified aspect to this. And so the Sunday worship of the church is, is really qualitatively unique. It's God's people coming into the palace for a formal ceremony before the throne. An official audience with the king. We come to confess our faith and our allegiance, to take solemn oath, to receive forgiveness, to offer up prayers, to be instructed by God's officers, to eat at his table, and to render thanksgiving for all his benefits. And we're to respond to all of this with music and singing. All right, so other than this idea of worship, what other lessons can we sort of pull from this particular section, chapter 4? Well, first of all, the idea that God is holy, sovereign, and eternal. He's the creator who alone is worthy of worship. And see, although most of us, I hope, don't own little miniature pagan gods that we have on a little altar at home, if you do, I would really like to speak with you <laughs> later. Um, there's a lot of other idols that compete for our worship. 
And this passage is reminding us that those idols are not worthy of our devotion. They can't provide life, they can't give truth, they can't sustain us in trouble, and they can't deliver us from evil. Richard Richard Baucom writes this, False worship is false precisely because its object is not the transcendent mystery, but only the mystification of something finite. Let me read that again. False worship is false precisely because its object is not the transcendent mystery, but only the mystification of something that is infinite. God alone is the creator, which means God alone is worthy of worship. And Revelation 4 calls us to re-examine what is the object of our worship. Every year, practically every day, we see in newspapers a tragically high number of cases of abused or neglected children. And we read these stories where children are sort of treated as an afterthought at best or an obstacle at worst. And it can cause us to sort of simultaneously cry and yet be so angry at what we see happening. How could anybody do that to a child? How could anybody love drugs more than they love a baby? How could anybody have such fundamentally messed up priorities? And at the very heart of these questions is a sense that it's a great evil to devalue the most valuable things in the world, and that's people. To care more for a night of diversion or an illegal substance than the life of a child is a terrible thing. Yet how often have we failed to treasure and value God? How often do we elevate unworthy objects of worship over the God of the universe? Now, if you're visiting today, this next part is not directed at you. So you can kind of tune this out. How about the worship of sleep? How about the worship of coffee and snacks? Or the worship of taking a day off on Sunday? I'm going to be blunt with you all. This place is about half full when we start worship on Sunday morning. By the time we're finished, everyone's finally shown up. That's wrong. That means that you're valuing something more important than the worship of God. I've had people asking me for years to shut the coffee bar down at 10 o'clock. I have resisted because I thought, well, that's just pharisaical. (laughs) (laughs) I'm starting to soften because when there are more people over at the coffee bar 
at 10.15 or 10.20 than there are in here worshiping God. Something's messed up. And if you can't get here early enough to get some coffee and come in here and be in here at 10.15, then you need to re-examine what your priorities are. Because they're messed up. Simple as that. I kept trying to think of a way to sugarcoat this, and I couldn't. You can't value something more than you value God. And it's not... How many of you are late to work every day? <laughs> Probably none of you. If it gets right down to it. And yet, somehow or another, we think it's perfectly okay to show up late for God. That's messed up. That's just messed up. All right, we'll, we'll leave that alone. <laughs> True worship is God-centered. Um, a, a gentleman who wrote a commentary on Revelation named Joseph Mangino uh, shared the story of Will Campbell, who was sort of a theological gadfly and a civil rights activist. And he was speaking at this conference on the theme of Christianity and politics. And Campbell was asked what he thought was the most significant thing going on in Washington these days. You know what he said? There is nothing significant going on in Washington these days. <laughs> Campbell's point was not that the church shouldn't be unconcerned with what the state is doing, only that its sense of priorities must be shaped by the apolytic perception rather than the powers of this world. Washington is not a reliable guide for what is most important in God's eyes. See, this, this whole line of thinking sort of highlights how easy it is for us as Christians and as churches to, to drift into this horizontal pattern of worship that centers on satisfying human needs and desires. And what this text is doing, it's trying to reorient us into the fact that worship is vertical. True worship should first be vertical and then, by application, horizontal, right? We worship God and we serve people. That's the right order to have things in. Our deepest needs are met when we adjust our life to God. It's not the other way around. And when worship loses its God-centeredness, it loses its power to transform us. And so we do well when we follow the heavenly pattern of making our worship God-centered. Worship changes us. You can tell a lot about a congregation by how they sing. Not how well, but how boldly and how passionately. But to sing that way, people must sing in recognition and response to who God is and what he's done. And so 
This chapter shows us how worship centers and orders our lives around God, who is the ultimate reality. Eugene Peterson said that worship conserves the past and so acts as a stabilizing force, but it also rehearses in the present the end that lies ahead. We were created to worship, and we will worship something. See, pragmatically speaking, worship is not good for anything, serving no end purpose outside of itself. But at a deeper level, it's the most worthwhile thing that you could possibly imagine. If God is the living and true, then to worship him is to participate in that life and that truth. And finally, we can overcome on earth when we have a clear vision of the realities of heaven. This passage reminds us of the power of vision to really motivate perseverance. See, if we don't have that vision, then that endurance fades. When worldly powers seem to be in control, people need faith and hope to endure. These qualities grow stronger when they rest on the truth that God reigns from his throne and holds ultimate power over any and all hostile human authorities. Now I know there are those of you sitting out here who believe that if Hillary Clinton were elected president, the world as we exist would stop. And I know there are those of you sitting here who believe that if Donald Trump were elected president, the same thing would happen. Let me assure you, neither is true. Our faith and our hope only grow weaker if we neglect the truth of the heavenly vision. And this is what we were talking about when we mentioned perseverance. That's why you need to have that vision that there's something more, there's something greater in eternity than this life. And it doesn't matter. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't participate in the process. You shouldn't vote your conscience. You shouldn't you know, be a part of what it is. But what I'm saying is don't stress about it. Don't get all wound up and bound up in it. It just is. Keep your focus where it's supposed to be, on God. And the fact that God is in control. No earthly authority is. And if we'll stay there, then you will be able to survive this political season and its aftermath, whatever it turns out to be. Just stop watching TV. <laughs> it's probably the best advice I can give you is just stop. Just leave the newspaper alone, you know, just glance over the metro section to kind of get an idea of what's happening in your part of the world, but 
don't look at the rest of it. All right. So the big idea here should be pretty obvious by now. And that's that the, the heavenly beings are worshiping God as the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe. And we're expected to do the same. 